that was kind of the big thing because I do think a lot of people <laughs> I'm not going to say a lot of people boast about their skills but I do think that I was very humble in my interview I was very honest that I was green and I think they knew that not saying to undersell yourself or anything but I think that that was like kind of the moment for them were like okay she can learn a lot oh yeah we can we can we can train her Hello, welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Ray Mendoza-Landa, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamoto-Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Camila Costa. She's an African-American artist working as a storyboard revisionist on Tig and Seek at Cartoon Network. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Awesome. Hi, nice to meet you guys. Uh, originally from California. I moved to Florida, then I moved to Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I moved a lot, but I've always had like this calling towards art and animation. Like as a kid, I always wanted to do it, but I never really knew what it was. And as I got older, I just wanted to start pursuing it. And now I'm actually in the industry, which is insane. Yeah, you're doing Congrats. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, you know, like to actually get there. But, you know, mm-hmm. I like bunnies a lot. That's pretty much my my trademark and the color pink. The big thing. All right. That's, that's a great intro. Wait, sorry. One quick thing. This isn't a visual podcast, but for the audience that are listening in, she has like this amazing pink seat with like bunny ears, like, like this pink gamer chair with bunny ears. And it's so awesome to see. I'm <laughs> just ashamed it. that you guys can't see it as well. It's outstanding. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So the way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a fun little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices, and you have to choose in between the two of them, and then let us know why. All right. Sounds good. All right. I'll start off with the first question. Would you rather be a toy in Toy Story, where your job is to make kids happy, or a monster for Monsters, Inc., where your job is to scare the kids? Okay, I'm going to say a monster. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> because, okay, because, okay, you get to be cool looking. Right? You get to be like a super weird Mm -hmm. monster person, which I think Mm -hmm. would be pretty awesome. Also, as much as I love making content for children, Mm -hmm. scaring them would be pretty fun. (laughs) 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 And like the whole door thing, like it's like a portal. Like I would Mm -hmm. love to be in like a world where there's doors that go anywhere you want. Like it always goes to a kid's bedroom, sure. (laughs) But you could go anywhere in the world, anytime. Yeah. So I think that's actually kind of cool. And you're a monster. Like, who doesn't want to be a monster? Like, a toy is cool, but kids play so rough with toys. Like, that one scene where they're in, like, the preschool and all those kids <laughs> yeah. are, like, slobbering on them and, like, uh, bashing them against stuff. I'm like, you know, toys, that seems like a hard job. They got it rough. Yeah, they got it rough. <laughs> the worst thing I've ever done was work at Starbucks. And I don't think, I think toy would be worse than that. So mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take monster. For sure. Mm-hmm. What kind of monster would you be? I would be like a cute, like a big curly puff ball with like five eyes or something. Aww. It would be cute. I'd have like little horns. I love this. It would be nice. That's great. Would you want to stay in the business of scaring children for like the electricity or would you shift to making them laugh? Laughter would be kind of nice because I don't think I would be very scary in the first place. I don't think a big curly puff ball is scary. <laughs> a big curly puff ball. Uh, I think it'd make them laugh though. It'd be like a big clown kind of, you know? So I think that would be fun for sure. This is so sweet. Awesome. Great answer. <laughs> Last question. Which blue puppy would you rather spend a day with? Bluey from Bluey 
or Blue from Blue's Clues? Oh, no. This is awful. <laughs> you can't make me pick. Oh, no. I was just like the other day trying to remember the mail song mm. from Blue's Clues. Uh, like, you know, it's it mail goes, like, time. Yes, yes the like, mail, it never fails. <laughs> I was so happy. I was like, "Oh my gosh, my childhood!" And I researched it on YouTube. I was like, "Oh!" But also, I love Bluey. Like, mm-hmm. Bluey is one of my favorite shows right now. Mm-hmm. And I know it's for kids, but it's just so genuine. Mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. I love Bluey because it's just such a genuine kid show, and like all the kids act like kids. And it just really reminds me of like a time where I was a kid when I watch it. So it really puts me mm. in like that headspace where I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is what it was like to be a kid. You know, you kind of forget that when you get older. Mm. And it's just such a good show with such good messages. And Bluey seems like such a cool kid. So I'm going to have to go with Bluey. I'm, I'm sorry, Blue Blue's Clues. <laughs> I was wondering if you would go for this because I was like, well, Blue is the OG Blue Dog, right? That's true. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Original Blue Dog. For real, like that's the hard that's the hard choice because like Blue is so cute and she's so sweet and you know like mm-hmm. childhood like I got the nostalgia, but Bluey while she is like a very temperamental child mm-hmm. uh, and she's kind of crazy she seems like she'd be fun to hang out with. It's very sweet. I love that. Thank you. I'm just surprised that there's more than one blue dog. Right. <laughs> also, their names are just Blue and Bluey. Yeah. <laughs> you guys couldn't name your dog. Because when you were like, when you were starting the question, I'm like, there's only two blue dogs that I know there's of. There's two of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was in between. Thanks so much for playing with this, Camila. Awesome. Thank you. Can you tell us how you landed your first industry job as a storyboard revisionist on Cartoon Network's Tig and Seek? So this is kind of a very interesting story because the first time I did not take this. So my friend, she works on Tig and Seek. She was asking me while I was still in mm. college, she was like, hey, would you be interested in, you know, me sending off your portfolio to like my art director or something like that? And I was like, no. Because I'm still in school and, <laughs> and I want to finish school. And, you know, so at first I was like, I'm not ready for, you know, a job in the industry yet. And I want to finish school. And so I said no. And, you know, that wasn't even like a guaranteed job thing. It was just like, a, hey, let me just show this to my, you know, director and see if right. they like it. Yeah. And I said no to that at first. I'm so glad she asked the second time. She was like, hey, are you sure? That you don't want me to send off your portfolio just just to show my director. It doesn't mean you're going to get a job or anything. I just, you know, wanted her to see it and, you know, just wanted to see what they think of it. So I was like, oh, okay, sure. So she sent off just my portfolio website. And then I got an email and it was like, hey, do you want to do an interview? And I'm like, what? So I did mm. the board test and I thought I did really bad on it. Like I, I, I hated it. I looked at it. <laughs> I hated it. I didn't know how to draw the characters. Uh-huh. I didn't know really, like I watched like two episodes of the show. So I wasn't really that like 100% on what their personalities were like. Like I kind of got it, but I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. And I never worked from a script before. I had never done like an entire board on my own. The most experience I had up until that point was doing, you know, schoolwork. So this is like my first time. And when I turned it in, I hated it. I was like, oh, there's no way I'm getting this. But then there was like this this voice in the back of my head that was like, you got that. I don't know how I know, but I think you got that. And then, and then I got a, an email that asked for an interview. That was a surprise. I didn't think I was going to get one. 
but I did. Mm. And I did the interview and I just sent back some like, just, you know, like, thank you for the interview, like kind of emails to everyone after that. And then I got an email back and it was like, hey, we liked you, you know, would you like to work on Tig and Seek? And I was like, what? Because <laughs> I, <wasn't, laughs> I wasn't expecting any of that because essentially after that email, like entire trajectory of my life changed like super fast like mm. it was like this domino effect kind of because mm. i wasn't actually expecting to get that job but i got that job and i didn't really expect it to happen that way like everyone has these really like laborious job searching things and i just did my first interview and my first board test and somehow got the job which i just wasn't expecting that never happened mm -hmm. so that was weird because i was still in college and i didn't really know what to do but i said yes of course and i started working from home mm -hmm. in atlanta and i was like oh wait i have to move now so that was kind of <laughs> that was kind of like <laughs> segueing into you know how i'm in la and everything but really that's how i got the job it was just from a friend who just wanted to send my portfolio through to someone and just by chance they liked it so really i think the best thing from that that i've learned is to never say no ever again to anything 100 mm -hmm. <laughs> percent. yeah you had the second chance to make up for it yeah how long have you known this friend like it's summer from school or is it like a childhood friend this friend is someone i met on twitter actually mm. so i met this person through twitter you know we had just started talking back and forth She's worked on stuff like Ben 10 and, and things like that. I had no idea, though. She had none of this in her bio. She had none. She didn't even put that she worked at Cartoon Network. I had no clue. I had just started like this genuine friendship with her without knowing really anything. She's really cool. Her art was awesome. And we just kind of went from there. Like we just started chatting. We just kind of started this friendship. And I had no idea at all that she worked for Cartoon Network up until that point where I got the email. I was like, wait, she works at Cartoon Network? What? <laughs> I had no clue. But I think that's kind of like a, a big thing when it comes to befriending people in this industry is that I had no idea. And I wasn't befriending her just because she worked in this industry. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was a genuine friendship. Mm -hmm. So I really do think like building genuine friendships with people because you want to be friends with them and not because you want something from them is like a really big deal. Because I don't think if she scoped that kind of feel out for me that she would have put that offer through. Totally. No, for sure. And then something else I kind of want to touch on that you brought up is that what you were feeling was also totally valid when you're still a student, kind of not feeling ready or not like, oh, I want to finish school. And honestly, neither choice is a wrong choice. Yuki and myself, we know plenty of friends that got job offers, but decided to stay in school or got job offers and left. And both of them are doing well. I don't think either one is a bad choice to necessarily make. Honestly, the feeling of not being ready, it's kind of a feeling that doesn't escape you, honestly. Yep. For some people, it does. But like for a lot of people, it doesn't really escape you. So mm -hmm. the fact that you got the second opportunity, you're like, you know what? Let's do it. Just send it. Might not even lead to anything. But taking that opportunity led you to this path. And that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. That was, I think that's also like a thing with like imposter syndrome. I thought like once I got this job, that would like go away. But no, it's worse. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so much worse. Because I'm, now I'm near all these really talented people, you know, and mm -hmm. they're awesome. And I'm just like, how did I get this job? What mistake did they make? You know, that was how <laughs> I was in the beginning. Now, you know, I feel a bit more like I belong in this industry. But before it was just, it was overwhelming. 
because I really didn't think I was ready. And I probably wasn't ready, but I'm hmm. glad that people took the chance to hire me in the first place because I definitely feel like I am now. I'm curious because you mentioned it while you were taking the test. You said like, oh, I probably flubbed that, you know, couldn't draw the characters, all this stuff. Kind of looking back on it, is there anything that you think you did particularly well or like you wish that you would have known going into the test first? Because, yeah, students are often handed these tests and they're like, well, this is the first one I've ever done. Or like, I don't understand like what I'm supposed to be doing. So is there anything that in retrospect, if you had known more about, you could have done better or uh, what you did do right? Okay, so the way I had to do this test, because I had really nothing to work on. Mm. I had an iPad, though. So I got my iPad and I did all of the panels for it. Oh, wow. And it took forever. It took so long, but I was forced to redraw things. And mm -hmm. Tick and Seek, they, they like redrawing. They don't really like it when you just like shift a few limbs or stuff like that. You know, like when you're mm. like kind of puppeting your like vector art. Right, you right. know, they don't really like that. They like it when you redraw your, your, your board. Mm -hmm. So I think that was something I did that they liked was redrawing everything. I do it all the time now that I work, though. So. <laughughs> <laughs> but, you know, for that, I read you pretty much everything. But something I wish I could have done better was just interpret the script better. That was the first time I had ever really gotten handed a script to work off of. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was taking everything so carefully. Like, I was looking at the script and reading it and interpreting it exactly as it was. And I think the board was kind of boring mm. because of that. It was very like straightforward. <laughs> it was like, okay, the people who wrote the script, they meant for this to be what was, you know, in their brains. But these are writers. You know, like I'm, I'm supposed to be a board artist. I'm supposed to go kind of a little crazy with it, right? I played it very safe. And I wish I kind of took more risks with that and kind of maybe interpreted some scenes a bit better because... I did a lot of cuts that didn't need to be there, but yeah, in hindsight, I would have probably tried to reframe some things a bit better and cut less because I did so many cuts. It was just kind of ridiculous, but that was kind <laughs> of the reason why Like, I looked back at it and I was like, why did I cut so much? <laughs> now I know not to do that, but it was it was bad. <laughs> no, but that's like I, I think that's very true as far as like interpreting a script because like when it's your very first time, it can be very daunting and very like what's the best way to put these words to drawings or these words to like visual images. And something that I'm learning as well, working on a script different show, is that there's oftentimes things work so much better on paper than visually. And so that's where the job of the border is to like, okay, this was the intention, this was the essence, but how can I make this work visually to still make it across, but like not necessarily word verbatim what's on the script. Exactly. Maybe yeah. even plus it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To kind of like keep talking about your experiences so far, how would you describe your experience as a storyboard revisionist? Oh, okay. So this is fun because before I got this job, I had no idea what a board revisionist was. Mm. Oh, wow. I had no idea what a, yes. <laughs> what a board revisionist was before this. To be fair to you, I didn't know what a revisionist was until like my, I think, third or fourth year of college is when I learned of that position existed. Because to me, at the time, I only knew board artists. So that's completely fair. Yeah. Yeah, really. Because I had no idea what it was. I didn't even know what I was going to be doing. I didn't even really know, like, uh, in college, I went there for animation and i thought that's what i wanted to do because i like telling stories watching cartoons so i was like obviously mm -hmm. that's what an animator does right like mm -hmm. and i didn't know that you know storyboard artists are the ones who you know have this essentially like a blueprint so i didn't even know really what a board artist was until like my last like two years in college that's why like when i 
heard about revisionists, I was like, what do you even do? Like, I bet I'm just like sitting there and like making eyes look the right way, which is kind of part of it. Before that, I had no idea what it was. So when I was like on my first few days, I was like, what am I even going to be doing? As it went along, I kind of started to understand what it was. It's a lot of fixing eyelines. It's a lot of fixing hands. It's a lot of redrawing complete scenes, which I've done before. Uh, just very briefly, for those that may not be aware, what you mean by eyeline? Like fixing eyelines? Essentially, it's very literal. It's like the lines that go between the eyes of two characters who are looking at each other. So there's like an imaginary like dotted line that goes from one character's eyes to the other one, just so they make sure that they're looking at each other. And sometimes when you cut, a character will look like they're not looking at the character off screen. Or even in the same scene where they're both in, in frame, they might not look like they're looking at each other. So fixing the eyeline is essentially just moving the eyes, you know, up, making them look like they're looking at each other. Because that's such an easy thing to miss when you're boarding mm-hmm. is like, do they actually look like they're looking at each other? Or is, you know, is he looking behind him or is he looking at him? And that's kind of a very common fix. I get it in almost every single one of my revisions is like fixing that. Because for Tig and Seek... That kind of like connection between characters is super important. So you have to make sure they look at each other and storyboards have to be kind of literal because, you know, they're going to be animating that. And you have to make sure everything is like pretty much pristine before they send it off. So eyeline is a big one because they're going to take it literally if it's not looking directly at the character, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what would you describe as like probably like one of the biggest things you learned in your current role as a storyboard revisionist? Well, in general, just how to draw better. <laughs> I think I'm getting better at everything. Like, at first, I was like, oh, I'm not going to learn that much. I'm just drawing the same characters every day. You know, I'm not going to learn anything. That's wrong. I'm learning a lot. I guess, like, subconsciously. I'm learning a lot about shot composition, too. I think I'm way better at, like, composing scenes and stuff. Just because when I read a script now, I can already, like, see a better version of what I would have thought before. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of was looking at the, the board test I did before, and I would have done that whole thing completely differently now. And that's just because I'm looking at all these different boards, and I'm learning a lot from the board artists. That's why I think this, like, board revisions is such a good, like, entry-level position, because I'm learning a lot from people who are doing the boards. Mm-hmm. And I'm also learning a lot about file naming, and, like, naming your layers, which is something that sometimes <laughs> board artists don't even management. do. <laughs> yeah. So I have to fix it, you know? So it's a lot of fixing but i think i've learned how to be a better just artist in general like i think i'm getting better at just draftsmanship and you know form which is the show is really heavy on form they want to make sure that you know these characters look like they have dimension which is tough because these characters are you know 2d Mm -hmm. but that's like the goal you know you want to make sure these characters look like they're really there not like they're just on a piece of paper on top of Mm -hmm. you know like a background (laughs) the big takeaway for me is that i've just gotten all around better at pretty much everything i think doing this job has taught me more than i've ever learned in college pretty much Mm -hmm. you'd be surprised how much you learn when you're just drawing eight hours a day five days a week yeah for sure (laughs) just how much mileage you can accumulate And looking at other people who have done the job for, for many years and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's also a good tie-in to what, like, you were surprised they gave you the job and you look at your old board test and you're like, this is not good. <laughs> they, for sure, the director or, like, whoever hired you on, like, the person who gave you the recommendation in the first place, they all see potential in you and they're like, oh, we can train this person. 
maybe it's not perfect now, but they've got the chops. They're willing to learn, you know, like, let's bring them on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the most surprising thing to me. Mm-hmm. During the interview, they're like, yeah, we're we're looking, you know, to help green artists in this industry get in. Yeah. Essentially. And I was like, wait, really? That's great. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have issues with getting jobs mm-hmm. when they're green. And I was surprised that they were willing to take the time out to want to train someone who was green like mm-hmm. that. It's really up to like finding someone who's willing to really take the chance on you. Yeah. And I think the thing that you probably showcase as well with your test is that, and probably from your interview as well, it's like you're probably somebody that not only that could be taught, but that's willing to like learn and take notes and digest and kind of improve and learn going forward. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of the big thing because I do think a lot of people, I, I'm not going to say a lot of people boast about their skills, but I do think that I was very humble in my interview. I was very honest that I was green. And I think they knew that. And I think they were like, oh, yeah, we can we can we can train her, mm. you know, mm-hmm. not saying to undersell yourself or anything. But like, I think that that was kind of the moment for them were like, OK, she can she can learn a lot, you know? Yeah. So could you also kind of describe having that kind of imposter syndrome, not feeling like you're ready? But could you kind of describe to us that transition period for you from being a student studying animation to being a working professional in the industry? Did you feel ready? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all, because I got this job during summer. So I was out of school and I was planning to go back to school and I got this job. I was like, OK, I have to like not go to school anymore. I guess I'm done. I, I, I'll come back whenever I'm ready, I guess. So I was like, wait, so I got this. Now I'm in here. I made it. And I don't feel like I'm ready at all. You know, the first day was really interesting because like they don't really plan you for this in school, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. It's. Like, college is nice, but I don't think it really could have prepared me as well as just pure experience could have. I wasn't ready at all for this job where you're like, you know, in college, like, oh, yeah, you're going to be ready for your first industry job as soon as you get out of here. You know, they're like super confident about it. But nothing you learn in school is ever going to like match that initial first day or like just the way you feel in general. Like, I felt so inexperienced. I felt young. I was 22 when I got this job and I felt like a baby, you know, because everyone (laughs) else in this industry is like so established and just good at what they do. And I was like, oh, I'm a kid, you know, to these Mm -hmm. people and I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like this internal conflict where I was like, oh, my God, they're going to they're going to fire me right now. You know, I stink. They're going to fire me. Oh, my gosh. You know, I was constantly thinking they're going to they're going to let me go. But they didn't. And I'm still working for this show. So that transition was was hard, you know, because you're not really ever fully prepared for the transition. I don't think really. I mean, I think you get used to it, you know, but college and working are like two very different things. Also, I think in college, they kind of overdo it a little. Like (laughs) there were times in college where I'd be up late at night working on, you know, homework because, you know, I had three or four different things due at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was just stressful and Mm -hmm. just a lot of overwork, I think, just to like really nail it to you, I guess. that hey, you're going to be working hard in the industry, which, you know, I get that. But I don't work that hard. Like I don't work to the point where I'm stressed out and haven't slept and, you know, I'm running on, you know, chocolate caffeinated bars (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, like, I don't work like that hard anymore. <laughs> so they really do want you to think it's like the stressful, really difficult kind of deal, which it is. But 
I'm never that stressed anymore. College is way more stressful for me, I think, than work ever has been. Totally. Even with the, oh my God, they're going to fire me thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I don't have to worry about grades or anything. I just have to worry about essentially, they're going to hand this back to me probably, and I got to redo it. That's the worst that can happen. Mm -hmm. So for you, how many years were you actually attending Savannah College of Art and Design before landing your job on Taking the Seek? And then do you plan on going back and finishing education? Or do you think being in the industry now, you're learning enough on the job where maybe getting the degree isn't something important right now? This is kind of a hard question. Okay, so before I went to SCAD, I went to a community college because I wasn't about to pay for two years of general education courses. Oh, yeah. Community college. Yeah. <laughs> so I went I went to a community college first, got all of my classes, and then those transferred pretty well to SCAD. So I could kind of dive right into the art classes. So I came in in my third year of school. I was only there for about a year and a half, really. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. I, had, I had two more. Sorry, I had two more quarters to mm -hmm. go before I graduated. So if I were to go back, I'm not really sure. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm in... The thing that I went to college to, you know, to do, you know, I'm already, I made it, you know, I did it. Yeah. But if I did want to go in and get my bachelor's degree, you know, I guess I could. I'm making enough money to kind of like sustain that if I were to want to go and pursue that again. But I mean, it's just so expensive and I'm already kind of in this. Yeah. The education was worth it, though, in a lot of different ways, just because I met some really good people. And I had some really good teachers that taught me a lot. Like, you know, those kinds of experiences, I think, are worth going to college for. But like for me, once I got this job, I was like, oh, yes, finally, I can I can stop going to the school and wasting my money. <laughs> You're earning money instead. Exactly. Exactly. Like I was like I was you know working at Starbucks and, and trying to like get enough money for this. And it was super stressful. And then I got this job and I was like, oh, my God. Whoa, that's a lot of money. I don't have to do that anymore. Like, I don't have to go to school and, and, and you know, I don't have to spend, you know, 15K, you know, a quarter anymore. God. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was insane. Oh. I just don't know how people do it. You know, I'm, I'm not a particularly <laughs> rich person. I come from a pretty normal middle class, single parent family. So it's just me and my mom trying to raise money for my education. And that was hard. That was that was hard. And as soon as I got this job, I was out. Mm. I might one day. But for now, I think I have enough experience to keep me, for sure. hopefully keep me in this industry. Mm -hmm. That's really great hearing that. And for you, like, what kind of informed your decision or what like made you decide to go to study at Savannah College of Art and Design versus like any other kind of, you know, university or art school? Well, I was already in Atlanta. So that was kind of a plus. I was already in Georgia. I heard a lot of good about it. I had went just over and over to their SCAD days. I had been to like three before <laughs> before I went officially. <laughs> I really liked it. I liked the vibe. I liked the credentials of, you know, the professors that worked there, the people who graduated from there and the jobs that they had. Mm. And it was close. You know, it was close, but it was also like my dream school. CalArts is like everyone's dream school, but I kind of knew I wasn't good enough for CalArts. So I was just like, oh, I'm going to stick to stuff I know I can probably get into. And I did. Mm. It was nice. It was great. I mean, I met so many good people mm. and it was worth it for me just going to have that experience because there's times now where I do miss, like, I, I do kind of miss being in, you know, the computer lab with people at 2 a.m. working on our projects. You know, I kind of miss that feeling. It was, <laughs> it was a community. You know, we had a community. For sure. We had people. We had a support system. Like, everyone, even if you didn't know each other, 
was in it together, you know, and I had mm. that that feeling that we were all doing something really cool. I just thought it was a really good environment. Totally. There's no bond stronger than being stuck in a computer lab with somebody at 2 a.m. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and you can see like, you know, the exasperation on their faces and they're tired and, you know, they haven't eaten yet. And, you know, oh, but then then you go and order pizza and it's fun, you know, so it was nice. <laughs> you build strong connections. <laughs> <laughs> College is a great experience. You learn a lot of things, but again, isn't exactly for everyone. Mm-hmm. In your journey as well, like you showed enough skill where you're able to get a job fairly soon, which is kind of amazing. And again, you might feel like you still have this imposter syndrome, but like obviously you're showing the capabilities to do the job and you're succeeding right now. You're doing really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. When you were hired on to Take and Seek, you said that you moved from like Georgia to LA, right? Yeah. Did the company help you at all? Were they like, oh, we can help you relocate? Or was that like all out of pocket for you? That was all out of pocket. They did let me have a few days off, which was nice because I had decided to move in October and I got hired in August. They let me have quite a few days off and they really didn't mind. I still got paid for them, which was kind of cool. Nice. So in kind of a way, they kind of helped. But really, it was a lot of just out of pocket savings because I had started saving while I was working from home in those beginning first few months of working for Take and Seek. So I had kind of a lot saved up because I wasn't paying, you know, LA living wages. You know, I wasn't going out and spending like $10 on a sandwich. So I could actually like kind of chill. So by the time I moved, I had about 8K saved up. And then then by the time I moved here, almost all of that was pretty much gone. Gone. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, I I got an apartment. I had to order all this furniture. None of this was here like two months ago. (laughs) So, you know, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. If you're going to move to LA, you have to have a lot saved up because I had that much saved up. And at the end of it, I had enough money for rent, basically. And that was it. Mm -hmm. So it was tough. Trying to do all of that on your own, really, because I had my mom and we, you know, I took a flight and she drove the way instead. So I didn't have to drive. And yeah, Mm -hmm. she drove like a day's worth just to get some of my stuff over here because the shipping prices were a lot and moving was too much. And we were just like, we're middle class. Like, we don't have the money for this. So we were just trying to figure out how to Mm -hmm. make it work. We made it work. What a great mom. I know. She's amazing. She's awesome. Oh, my gosh. She's She's one of the reasons why I'm doing this. You know, without her support, I I could not be doing any of this right now. So big shout out to my mom. Mm -hmm. But it was just a lot of work. It was a lot of money. And like, you have to have a lot saved up to move to LA. Yeah. And make your own food. Mm -hmm. Just a general tip. Money is very, uh, like, expendable, I guess. And it shouldn't be, especially for something like food. So if there was any kind of tip I could give people is to just make your own food and cook and stuff. Because... Your pockets will be empty if you keep (laughs) ordering Uber Eats every day. so expensive. Yeah. Yeah, it can get very pricey. Yeah, for sure. One of like the amazing kind of organizations that kind of rose up during this whole pandemic and even like throughout the whole Black Lives Matters movement was Rise Up Animation. It was kind of created as an effort to support BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color talent in the animation industry. And then Rise Up Animation also offers these free industry feedback sessions, like mentorship programs, and informative panels and studio talks that's open to everybody. And you are currently, and we're spotlighted as a Rise Up Animation mentee. How has that experience been for you? And how did you get involved in that? Well, I had just started hearing about it, just kind of going around on social media. 
it was something that I had like kind of like a passing interest in. And like, you know, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, why not? Let me just see what this is all about. Cause I thought it was doing some really good stuff and I didn't really want to be a part of that. And so I had signed up for like a, like a mentee session with someone who was in the industry. She was amazing. We did like a one-on-one kind of like an interview session where I could pretty much ask her anything I wanted. I mean, she told me so much about, you know, how it is being in this industry, how it is being in this industry and being black. That was kind of a, mm. a thing I was concerned about because as a kid, I had never seen anyone that looked like me in this industry. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of like something that had me a little worried because I was like, you know, well, how is that going to feel? And she was really good at answering my questions about stuff like that. And I got a lot of guidance from that. And I think that it's a really great program. They do some really good stuff. And I'm just really glad that these people who are in the industry are even taking out the time to do something like that. I mean, that's remarkable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that was before I got this job. That was before any of it. So I was asking her all these questions and I don't know, it, it felt good. It made me feel like very reassured about, you know, coming into this industry, I guess a minority in this industry because, you know, animation, its roots, they're very racist kind of like mm-hmm. animation's roots are, are kind of in you know, blackface and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. right. that's how it was formed. You know, it's kind of like the basis of animation. And, you know, to be working in that industry now, you know, as a black woman, I think that's super powerful, you know? Mm-hmm. So hearing stuff like that from from her and if I'm not like mistaken, I think her name was Angela. She was awesome. And she answered so many questions and really made me feel like I'm making the right choice in pursuing this. If you are interested in that, definitely go for it because the program is just amazing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this like on a, before we started recording, but growing up not knowing that many black individuals in animation or seeing people that look like you in the industry. And that's kind of a similar experience that I kind of shared growing up as well. Getting paired up with somebody that's seasoned and experienced that's that looks like you is like, wow, like people are really doing amazing stuff or people are in amazing positions that look like me that you can look up to and feel like that can be me one day. I can be in that position and I can be that representation for the next person. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because growing up, I had always seen the like the little cards at the end of cartoons that was like, oh, this is made so and so. And, you know, you always saw the people and you always saw like the showrunners on like the, the, the bumpers between like shows where they draw their characters and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is so cool. But I had never like fully internalized why I never really felt like I could do it, you know? And that was definitely Mm -hmm. a part of it. But yeah, I do think that them like, you know, pairing me up with a mentor like that is awesome because I had never really been able to go like face to face with someone who works in this industry and ask them questions. Like, you know, you don't get to do that very often. Mm -hmm. So that was very much like a very awesome opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thanks for being honest about it, because I feel like even if you can listen to a podcast like ours and hear somebody's experiences or something like that, it's not always the easiest to get into like, you know, the bad or the hard stuff. You're right. The industry is it it has a history in racism. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's particularly because the voices who started animation, right, were racists. But yeah, we're hopefully changing that now that more black indigenous and people of color are coming into the industry and letting their voice be heard. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on that topic for you, Camila, does your kind of cultural upbringing as an African-American play a role in your identity as an artist and the stories that you tell or want to tell? In a lot of ways it does, because this is more internalization stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid and I got into anime, 
because everyone gets an anime. This is how you start off. <laughs> yes. You know? <laughs> the anime. Yeah. Like, I was into Pokemon, and then I learned that Pokemon was actually an anime, and then I learned all this other stuff, and then that just, I got how to draw manga books, and, you know, after mm-hmm. that, it's a downward spiral. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I got into that, and I started drawing anime stuff, and, you know, it was bad. I mean, I didn't know that. I was having fun. But I never drew a black girl. I never drew a black character. And I did not know why. Like, as I started drawing them, you know, my dad at some point, he asked me, like, why aren't any of them black? And I was like, you know, I guess black people aren't anime. Like, you know, and I didn't know why I felt that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like a turning point for me. Because after that, I pretty much solely, if only drew people of color after that. Like, now it's going to be kind of hard for you to find someone that I draw that is of a lighter complexion. Just because I had been drawing white characters mm-hmm. almost all the way up until I was like 15, 16. Mm-hmm. I had never really internalized why I didn't feel like I could draw a black character in that style. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, I try to make sure that I draw characters who are black and that I draw characters who I can relate to. Because, you know, I can't relate. I couldn't relate back then to the characters that I was drawing just because they weren't you know, they weren't me, but I, you know, of course I was like, oh, well, yeah, they're anime. They have to be, you know, white with blonde hair, or like pink hair, and they have to have blue eyes. And it's like all of that kind of leads to you feeling like you're not really accepted in general. And that's kind of like a really hard hurdle to get past. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, no, I don't have to draw this stuff. I, I can draw black characters. So that's why I, I draw a majority black characters most of the time. Usually, you know, I'll draw animals too. I love drawing, you know, like fruit and animals, like as, <laughs> as like, you know, like people, mm-hmm. which to me, like, I like storytelling. Yeah. So right now, like, I have this thing called the Apple Mage, which is just about a bunch of fruit. But then I also have this other thing that I'm working on called the Subject Six. And I tried to make this cast as like diverse as possible just because I don't really see that much going on and stuff like magical girl stuff. Like, it's a magical girl kind of sci-fi thing I'm working on. It's very weird, but it's about six middle schoolers. And I just kind of wanted it to be as diverse as I could get it because I don't think I saw enough of that growing up. And I know kids now have a lot more to go by when it comes to diversity in shows. But like growing up, I never saw a cast as diverse as, you know, the thing I'm working on right now. So that kind of leads into my creative like thinking i guess is that you know Mm -hmm. i want kids to see themselves in their media right Mm -hmm. so you know one second i might be working on a story about you know apples (laughs) (laughs) and the next i might be working about a show about you know kids who are just having fun i think that everyone wants to see a little bit of themselves in the media that they consume yeah so i just kind of wanted to make sure that kids who could maybe one day watch it get to see themselves in these characters it's honestly really beautiful and well put because you are not alone. Growing up, I was into like Dragon Ball Z. I was into American cartoons as well. And yeah, a lot of the characters I would draw would just be these white characters or these anime inspired characters. And it was great that your dad pointed it out to you because I think for me, it, it took me a long time to realize why I never drew a character that looked like me or never drew a character that was Hispanic or brown. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was till like college for me until like I had that realization. I think like Book of Life was like the trigger for me where I was like, I can tell my story mm-hmm. or I can I can draw characters that are like not white. Mm-hmm. It took me to college to realize that with my art 
but for like in high school for a while now i was like oh, i'm tired of making these white game characters <laughs> i started making like characters that look like me like with the brown skin because there's finally some brown skin and Pokemon too, when they had like the Pokemon X and Y, we can finally change the skin. Yes. Like, that was huge for me. I was like, yes, I can finally make a character that looks like me. But in games, it's, that's when I started making characters that looked like me. But it took me a while to apply that to my art for some reason. It just didn't click. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, Somehow. And it, it did at one point. And I think what you're doing is something that very much I want to do as well. Like, I want kids to grow up with a bit more diversity. I want kids to grow up with characters that look like them. And I'm glad that there's shows coming out now that are giving them the opportunity to see, again, a familiar face. Yeah, and that's. I don't know. I think it's very powerful because I have a little brother mm-hmm. and he I, he's growing up where there's just all these shows with so much just all these characters that look like him. Like I was like thinking about like Craig of the Creek. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that growing up. He does, which I'm glad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I didn't have that amount of, you know, just representation growing up. And I'm so glad that he gets to see that. And, you know, even like what you said with, with video games, the fact that this is the first Animal Crossing that I can change my skin tone in. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy it took this long. And, you know, it's in every kind of artistic industry where people are like, wait a minute, there's other colors, you know? <laughs> I think there's like this collective like realization that you can put other, you know, kinds of people in your mm-hmm. in your games and in your media. So I'm glad to see it. So for yourself, is there any other future aspirations that you would want to pursue in the animation industry? In the future, I'd like to, you know, be a like a board artist and maybe after that, like a director. Mm. But my big goal is feature one day would be really cool. I would love to do something feature because I just I look at like, you know, their boards and I look at all the time that they have to really perfect, you know, these scenes, rehash stuff and to really go through like ideas which, in, you know, in TV animation, everything's so fast. You know, everything's so fast-paced. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to be able to have the time to really explore an idea, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm going to try to work myself up there and then see if one day I could do that in the far future. <laughs> I know it's going to be a while, so... Or, you know, just, like, directing would be really cool. It's a really cool kind of job, like, being able to oversee people like that. And I don't know, it's, like, a really cool part of the process, I think. But being a board artist would be nice, just because it's such a, like, intimate part of the animation process you know you're really like you're in there you know Mm -hmm. you are in this process you're in the trenches like without (laughs) you this episode's not getting made so i think that that part Mm -hmm. is something i want to be a part of at some point but revisions is just such a good way to get into it Mm -hmm. so i'm really enjoying what i'm doing right now too totally yeah and then for yourself as well because you brought it up the personal projects like the apple mage is there anything you want to do with those projects in the future as well apple mage initially was supposed to be a pitch. But I care about that idea way too much. It's essentially a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood, but it's apples. And there's a doctor character that essentially wants to try to harness these apples and their immortality in a way, because (laughs) they have this very intricate reincarnation cycle. I'm not going to get into it. But it's kind of just a big pun. He takes her grandma, Granny Smith, and he's a doctor and, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Uh, you know, it's a big pun. <laughs> and I like it. But it does get kind of dark. It's supposed to be kind of like, it leads into it. It's very cheery and happy-go-lucky in the beginning and you're not expecting any of it. And then it gets kind of dark. And then I was thinking about if I were to pitch it, a story that's essentially like my baby at this point, if I'm working on it for so long. Would I be happy with changes that would happen to 
the darker parts. And I'm be like, no, actually, I don't think I'd be okay with that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go more webcomic for that. That's more of a webcomic idea for me now, something that I can have full creative control over. Complete ownership. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. I always, I hate seeing these creators like getting kind of shafted because you can't show specific things on air or, mm-hmm. you know, you can't do certain things like how Rebecca Sugar had problems with Ruby and Sapphire. Like, I don't want to have problems like that when it comes to mm-hmm. like me telling my own story. So webcomics is the way to go for that one. But for the subject six, which is about a bunch of middle schoolers and aliens, which is fun. That one I I care about, but it's an idea that I want to pitch. So that one's more on like a pitch level, Mm. just because it's not my baby entirely. I feel like if you're going to pitch something, you shouldn't pitch your baby because you're going to be really heartbroken once they start tearing it apart. So that's something I want to try to pitch one day and get made into something. I don't know, a short or a show be pretty cool. But the fallback for pretty much all of it is webcomic, if I have the time. Yeah. Having that innate creative control would be really nice. No, for sure. And again, like with the space it is right now, that's a big possibility if you have the time. Because it's a lot of work. Making a webcomic is a lot of work. Making just your own personal IP is a lot of work. But you have the time. Going the indie route, doing webcomics is honestly a valid way to like keep ownership and keep something of you. And keep it integral the way you want it to be. I think both routes are great depending how you want to take it. And hopefully, like, I would want to see both come to fruition. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I hope I can fit the time in to do the Apple Mage as a comic. Or even pitch it one day. Who knows what they'll say. But, you know, I mean, I feel like taking risks and chances on things that you'd like to see come to fruition is, like, an integral part of of being in this industry is taking a lot of chances. Mm -hmm. Who knows what will happen, but it's really fun to work your way up to that. But Apple Mage is fun and it gets a little dark. You know, it's a comic about apples. Like, how dark can it get? But I would, <laughs> right? Like, you'd think that. But I have a lot in store for that. So, yeah, I can't wait to actually be able to dig into it once I get the time. So, really quick at the time of release of this episode, Camila has actually started posting Apple Mage as a webcomic. And you can check it out every Thursday on Webtoons. Highly recommend you all check it out. And for us, as we kind of come to a close, is there any final advice that you want to give to those that are wanting to pursue a career in the animation industry? I would say just keep going, honestly, because I always had like this large amount of support for my mom. She always knew I could do what I'm doing now. And, you know, I had doubts that I'd ever get here. You know, my dad, he tried to push me into more traditional college choices. And my mom, no, she wanted me to pursue this, even when I was doubting myself. So I'd say not to doubt yourself, to keep pursuing your dreams, really, because you really, literally, you never know when opportunity is going to come knocking on your door. Like, you have no idea. It could come anytime, anywhere. But just say yes. If you're given an opportunity, just say yes. Like, please, please just say yes. If I were given a second chance... I would not be here. I would not have any of the things I have. I wouldn't be living in LA. I wouldn't have this job. I wouldn't have this life that I have now, which is, I think I'm having a pretty good life right now. So mm-hmm. I think just if there's any kinds of opportunities that you think you're not quite prepared for, there's really no harm in just trying because the worst they can say is no. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no downside to trying. Keep trying and just keep believing in yourself, I guess is the best thing I can say. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you want to plug at this time? Right now, I'm pretty much just active on Twitter. It's twitter.com dash bunhearts if you're on, you know, like a website, but it's bunhearts, like bun and a heart. 
with an S. <laughs> I really just post sketches and drawings and stuff as much as I can with the job that I have right now, which is, you know, kind of periodic, but I still try. I sometimes post, you know, little Apple made doodles or doodles of the subject six if you ever want to get to know a bit more about them and my uh, pitch concepts. They're on there too. It's beautiful. That's great. Well, if you enjoyed our interview with Camila today, Please rate us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StraightAheadAP. And let us know your response to today's in-between questions. Or if you have any suggestions for future in-between questions, contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please get in touch with us. We love discovering new professionals and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. Thank you to our editor for this episode, Edgar Arellano. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest, who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.